Everyone has an idea, but is it right? Everyone seems to know what a Christian is, how the Christian life should look, and what kind of place the church should be. But are we even close? What if we could know? What if it looks different than we think? What if what God is building is more than a group of good people, but a community? Join us as we walk through the book of Philippians and see together a beautiful community. All right, kids ages three pre-K can head down Holy Cross Kids Worship. Train is leaving. Man, that train's leaving quick. I guess you got to run, right? If the kids are in the lead, you got to get out of there quick. Uh, the rest of you, uh, turn in your Bible to Philippians chapter 1. If uh, you don't have a Bible with you, that it's the passages in your order of worship. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, there's a bunch on the back table. Uh, you can... Grab one of those now if that doesn't feel awkward to you. If it does, then just grab one on your way out because that's our gift to you. So take it. So, uh, so last week we began this series. And I know there's like three people in this room for whom the beginning of a new series is an exciting thing. Where you're thinking like, man, I can't wait to hear what we talk about next. For the rest of us, uh, let me just help by reminding us what we're talking about during this time. So Christianity, the Christian life, uh, even the church... What, what are these things supposed to look like? Right? We all have these notions. Many of those notions are born out of our culture. Some are born out of our personal experience. Others are just born out of assumptions or, or our values. Like, if this is what we think is great, then this must be what something called church is about. Uh, but, but what does God think? This book, the, uh, this, this letter to this church in Philippi, what we call Philippians, kind of speaks to that. It's about what it is that makes us Christians, what kind of shape the Christian life takes uh, that's going to take up the vast majority of this book. And, w- and what it is that this community we call the church is supposed to look like. And so last week we got started. Uh, we, we set the stage by, by talking about how this community, the church, is formed by people being given by God both grace and peace. And this week we see that grace and peace doesn't create consumers. In other words, it doesn't create people that just sit and kind of receive. It creates partners. So if you have your place in Philippians 1, our habit here is to stand. So let's stand in honor of God's word. We are going to be reading verses 3 through 11. This is God's word for us, friends. Let's hear it in that way. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so, be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. It's God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, we just heard sung, and some of us joined in singing the, the confession that we need you every hour. If that's true of every hour, how much more now when we are in a precarious position? Because, Lord, we, we have heard God's word read, uh, and our hearts have have a, a point of decision. Will we be hardened by it or will we be softened and ultimately broken unto grace by it? 
We can't do that on our own. So we need you, Holy Spirit, to be acting even during this time. Some of us are here and we are excited to hear from you. Others of us are here and we're already bored and wondering about when, when we can get out of here to get ready for the playoff games later. And so we, we need you, even now, to come and preach to us. Speak your gospel to us. Let Christ and all that he has done come to the fore and let the one who speaks fall to the wayside, Lord. You alone hold the words of eternal life. So we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So, can we review something really quick? And like, I, I say that knowing that that's not like the cool, hip, sexy thing to do to start off a sermon. Because what I'm supposed to do is I'm supposed to give you some kind of hook, like some kind of either story, little witty uh, story that I've thought of, or some like cultural thing that's going to draw you in. But you are all smart people, and, and I think we can risk not doing that just once, okay? So, so here, let's review a little bit. Last week we talked about Paul, right? Paul's the dude who wrote the letter to the Philippians. And, and we talked about him, how he was at one time violently anti-Christian. Violently anti-Christian. Now, let's be honest, there's probably some of us in this room who are, who are kind of anti-Christian as it is. We're not really sure why we're here uh, but, but we're here, maybe someone promised a, a lunch, and we're like, we had to put in our hour to get the lunch, and then you came and you're like, it's an hour and a half, and you're like, man, uh, this better be a really good lunch. And so you're, you're, you may already be there, but, but we're talking like violently anti-Christian, like violent about it. Uh, as in hunting Christians down. Dragging them from their homes and jailing them, right? And I likened this to, to like one of the local leaders of ISIS or Boko Haram, like one of these groups that is violently like persecuting Christians, searching out those who claim Christ and, and, and uh, either arresting or, or violently persecuting them, right? But Paul actually becomes a Christian. And so here's this guy who's writing this letter who's, who's a guy with a past, a painful one. A past that he's not too proud of. Maybe you can relate to that. And then there's this church in Philippi. Remember what I said about them? Like, we know that there are, there are at least three people in this church. <laughs> I'm sure they're bigger than that. But we know of three that they're talked about in the book of Acts. One was this rather wealthy, upper-class woman from a religious background. That's kind, of, that's kind of who we'd expect to be in church, right? I mean, let's be honest. That's who most of us think. When we have the picture of church, that's who we're thinking of. Another was this slave girl who had a demon... This girl was trafficked by her owners to make money for them until Paul came along and got rid of the demon. The demon that was apparently making them money. And then there's the jailer. This, this guy who was a, a brutal and cruel man who beat the tar out of Paul. Like, beat him senseless because he had gotten arrested. But later, he becomes a Christian. Right? This jailer becomes a Christian, ends up cleaning Paul up and, and helping him. And none of these stories are probably exactly what we expect. Right? I mean, the this is, this is a church leader who has a violent and rabidly anti-Christian past. The church members are this collection of people with varied backgrounds, uh, all coming together because they received, as we're told last week, grace and peace. And the great thing about this grace and peace that Paul talks about last week, he kind of fleshes out this week, is that it has a kind of outward force. That, that when you become enamored with Jesus by grace... When you've been given peace, then you become someone who wants to see that go forward. And so that's kind of the way in which we're going to look at this passage this morning. We're going to look at it in two ways. 
Okay? We're going to look at being partners in the gospel, and then we're going to look at being partners in grace. And you can find that. There's an outline in your bulletin. That's helpful. If not, leave it. Okay? But let's start by looking at what it means to be a partner in the gospel. Look down at verse, verses 3 through 5. So maybe as, I'm, as I was reading it, and, and to be honest, the, the ESV, the translation we use, doesn't really help here. But maybe you picked up, like, Paul is, like, super thankful. Like, like who starts a letter with this? Like, he says... I thank my God always in all my prayers for you all. Like in the, in the original, in the, in the Greek, because this was written in Greek. I don't, uh, the, the New Testament was written in Greek, the Old Testament in Hebrew. Uh, so in the, in, the, in the original, in the Greek, that word all is repeated four times in the first, in the first verse, right? Um, it's like, it, it's amazing. And so you, you get the idea. Paul is pretty thankful for this group of people. And the why, why he's so thankful comes in verse 5. Okay, he says this. Look down there. He says, I'm thankful all the time. I'm thankful all the time. Making prayers with joy because, and if you have your Bible, underline that word because, because of your partnership in the gospel. So here it is. Paul is insanely thankful, uber thankful to God because of this, this church, their partnership in the gospel. That's clear, right? Yeah, Rick, except we have no idea what partnership in the gospel means. Okay, so of course you don't. Let me, let me clarify two things. Let me clarify being a partner and then let me clarify the gospel. First, being a partner. Now, some of your translations, if you're not using the same one we are, they'll say things like, uh, I'm thankful for your fellowship in the gospel or your sharing in the gospel. Um, those are, those kind of confuse things. That word can mean those things. It's not like the translators are being deceitful, but the context leads more to partners, okay? So that word partners, when we, when we look at it in that context, it's a business term, okay? It's a business term. It is, it, it is, uh, it's very much like the way you would talk if you started a business, and some of you have, right? If you started a business and you were, you were uh, talking about your investors, they're your business partners. Some of them are silent, others of them, not so much, but, but they are all with you together, partners. And so Paul is calling the Philippians partners because of their history, okay? Let me, let me review that for a second. So in Acts chapter 16, that's, if you go to the left in your Bible a little bit, you'll come to the book of Acts. And in chapter 16, Paul goes to Philippi and he preaches, right? We, we kind of talked about those three people that he, that kind of tells us what happened with them, but he preaches and a church is born out of that. And then in two chapters later in Acts 18, he goes to Corinth, and when he goes to Corinth, so, so Philippi is in Macedonia, which is kind of the northern part, the northeastern part of Greece, what is now Greece. He goes to Corinth, which is kind of in the main part of what we would normally look at the map and say, oh, that's Greece. He goes to Corinth to do the same thing he did in Philippi. Now, Paul's normal way of doing this, the way he would normally go into a city, is he would go in, uh, and, and dude has to eat, right? So brother's got to eat. So he had a trade, which... Um, Y'all don't get any ideas, because I don't have a trade, by the way. So, anyway, he, he, goes, into, he goes into Corinth, and he, uh, he begins uh, tent making. I didn't know there was such a big market for tents in the ancient world, but apparently you can make pretty good money. So he starts tent making, which is kind of like leather working. And, and he, he does that during the day and preaches at night to, to make a living, to be able to support himself. Uh, which means that he's kind of restricted in how much he can do, right? There's only so much you can do when, when your real job is, is making stuff so that you can eat. And then in Acts 18, we're told that the Philippians, while he's in Corinth, send financial support to him in Corinth so that he no longer has to make tents, whatever it was. Like, it was big enough, the brother did not have to work anymore. He could actually go and, and preach and make his living off the gospel, okay? He could... He could Preach full time. 
This is why Paul says in our passage, like, you've been partners with me from the first day. In other words, from the first time that I met you, from the first experience together, you have been a partner in the gospel. And so we know that they gave then. We also know in 2 Corinthians 8, okay, if you're a Bible nut, you can flip around and see that. In 2 Corinthians 8, uh, the, the churches in Macedonia, which would have included the, Philipp- the Philippian church, Paul says gave cr- in a crazy way to this offering that he was taking up. As a matter of fact, he says that they gave beyond their means. I don't even know what that means. Because, like, that's not a day where you're swiping something on your visa. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like he's, they're going into debt. We don't know exactly what he means by that. He's basically saying they gave beyond their ability. Like, it was, it was amazing how much they gave. And then, the very thing that prompted this letter to be written is that Paul, while he's under house arrest... Okay. Again, Paul's in jail at this moment when he's writing this. Like, he's in jail. So Paul's under house arrest, and, and some folks come to him from the Philippian church, again, and bring him support. So once again, these are folks who are constantly giving to, to see Paul's ministry go forward. Let me, let me just say that again before I move forward. Like, this letter was written because Paul who's in jail. Again, I hope to some extent this shatters some of your understandings of church leadership. Like, this brother's in jail. Now, you can, we'll talk more about that next week. You can come back then and hear about that. But he's in jail, and these folks have, have supported him so that he can do what he needs to do even while under house arrest. Okay? They are insanely involved financially with what Paul is doing. So they are partners. But then there's the second term, gospel. Now, if you've been at Holy Cross any amount of time, I would hope at this point that that term is pretty, pretty basic. At the very least, you've heard it enough. It's ad nauseum. You're kind of sick of hearing it. But uh, let, me, let me remind us what it means. Okay? Simply, it means good news. Good news. Good news. But in Christianity, it takes a little bit of a more technical term. Okay? Now, if you've grown up in the church, you probably know that there are four books in the New Testament that we call Gospels. Right? The Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of Mark, Gospel of Luke, Gospel of John. It's not what we're talking about, okay? The gospel is not a book. It's not a letter. The gospel is a message, at least in the way Paul's using the term. And so at its simplest, the gospel simply means that God reigns, that Jesus reigns. Not very helpful, though. So let me get more specific. The gospel is that God has finally come to answer his long, long spoken promise to rescue humanity from our sin. To reconcile us to himself. And that he has done this. Already accomplished. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, notice a couple things about this. First, the gospel is about what God has done. Not about what we do. Okay, that is huge. The gospel is the central message of Christianity. And it is not about us. It's about God. Okay? It's about Jesus. It's about what he has done. Second, the gospel is that Jesus has come and finished what was needed to reconcile us to God. If you're here this morning and, and you're here because you think that, um, that ch- being at church will get you on God's nice list, you're mistaken. Now, let's, let's be all clear. Being at church will get you on the pastor's nice list. But that ain't going to help you much. Okay, That and a quarter will buy... A, well, we don't have phone booths anymore. That accord will buy you a, a soda at Walmart. Anyway, but the point is this. You're mistaken. Being here is not going to get you on God's nice list. The only thing that makes us right 
with God is, is for our sin to be dealt with and to have a record of perfection before him. How are you doing on that? Probably about as good as me, which is to say not, all right? The gospel is not, here is what you need to do, can you do it? The gospel is, here is what has been done, will you accept it? It's not, here is what you need to do, go do it. It's, here's what has been done, will you accept it? And so what Paul means by partnering in the gospel is that the Philippians have given themselves, they've given their resources, in fact, to seeing this message proclaimed both in their city and beyond their city. Okay? Got that? All right, good, let's move on. Because next we see a a confidence in partnership. Look at verse 6. Paul says, I am sure of this. I am certain of this, he says, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Now, we're going to talk about the certainty in a second, but let's start with with what it is that he's sure of, okay? When he says he, he who began a good work, he's talking about God, okay? So God is carrying out a good work. What is that good work? Here's the rub. And look, I know this is going to rub some of us wrong, I'm sorry about that, but again, like y'all are smart people, and so if I glossed over this, you would, you would understand that I'm kind of mixing things up and changing things or skipping over stuff. So, so uh, like, I know this is going to hit some of you funny, but this is what the Bible says, and it's true. So, yeah. All right, here we go. So the Bible teaches that humanity, because of our failure way back in the garden, way back in the beginning, that all of humanity are by nature, in other words, from birth, in other words, turned away from God. Okay, like left to ourselves, we don't want to have anything to do with him from birth. And if you have kids, you get that, right? Because you've seen them. They look real nice and cute and funny until they start, they learn the word mine, right? And then it all changes. Uh, so here's the thing that, that surprises all of us. We're like, well, what do you mean, Rick, that we're, we're from, by nature, from birth, like turned away from God? What about, what about? The fact that there's so many religious people. Here's the thing. Even our religiosity is a method to control God often. Because we recognize, right? Maybe you believe in God. You're here this morning. You believe in God. The Christian thing you're not sure about. But you believe in God. And what, what you mean by that is, I believe there is something. There is someone out there who's bigger and stronger than me. And if I can do the right things, hopefully I can get him on my side. Or her. Or it. On my side. Because if that works, I'll be okay. And so I'll go through the religious motions, I'll, I'll come into a place of worship, even if it's a gym, and I'll, when the basket comes around, I'll look at whatever tip I've got in my wallet, and I'll put it in there, and then, okay, I've, I've paid my dues, he'll be good for me this week. That is characteristic of a lot of what is called Christianity in North America, but it is not Christian. That's just dead religion. Okay? And so the way Paul talks about this idea of being by nature turned away from God is he says in another letter, he says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That we are are dead. Dead. Like corpses dead. Okay, not metaphorically. Like dead. You see, there's a difference between what the Bible teaches and what we want to believe. We want to believe that that we are in control of things, right? That we kind of have this, 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 uh, this ability to get right with God. But the Bible says, no. It says that we don't. We don't have that, that ability. We're dead. We're dead. And so the good work that Paul is talking about here is repenting of our sin and trusting in Jesus. Again, we want to think, you and I want to think that that's totally up to us, right? 
But the Bible is stubborn in saying that we are dead, that we are needy, that we are lost, that we are drowning people, that we don't need a little bit of reformation, a little cleaning up on the outside, a little shining up. We need a resurrection. And so Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, which is, again, just a couple letters to the left of this one, that no one can say Jesus is Lord. Listen again. No one can say Jesus is Lord, which is like the central confession of the Christian faith. No one can say that without the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's the Holy Spirit who has to do something So that we can even confess the central assertion of the Christian faith. So what Paul is talking about even here, that he who began a good work in you, what he's talking about here is the Bible's insistence that, listen to me, I know this is hard, but this is just, this is, we've got to get this. That Jesus does not just make salvation possible. Jesus saves people to the uttermost. He doesn't just make it possible. If you get on the right train, he saves us. Okay? You with me? All right. So Paul says, I'm confident that he who gave you faith, that he who began a good work in you, will continue it till the day of Christ Jesus. Now that's bold, right? Because basically what he's saying is, I can tell, Philippians, that your faith is not fake. Which is not a given, by the way. He's saying, look, I can tell it's not an act. I can tell that it's God working in you. And if God is working in you, he's going to finish what he started. And that's a really bold statement, but it's true. If God started, he's going to finish it. And the reason for the surety, Paul says, is, his, is this partnership. Now, why? Because, uh, this is crucial. Okay, Sharing in the gospel, okay, sharing in the gospel should produce partnering for the gospel. A sharing in the gospel, saying, I believe this, should produce a partnering for the gospel. Okay? When we come to believe that Jesus is the only hope for the world, when we come to believe that Jesus is not just the only hope for the world in abstraction, but our only hope, we want others to experience this. We want his praise, the praise of Jesus for saving us, not just making it possible that we might be saved. Right? If Jesus just made it possible that we might be saved, that's that's great. But all that means is that I'm smarter than my neighbor because I took advantage of it. He didn't. But that, in fact, that he actually saved me when I wanted nothing to do with him. We We want praise of him to spread because there aren't enough voices to give praise for what he's done for us. But Man, we want to try. Right? And so Paul is saying, look. The fact that you are partnering with me in the gospel is evidence, it gives me confidence that God is at work in you. Okay? In other words, it is a sign. So note the order. Again, it's a sign of something. Paul is not saying, because you are partnering with me in the gospel, God will continue the work in you. But your partnership is a sign that God is working. Okay? Okay? Now, let's look at a church in partnership. What does this mean for us? Let me just suggest something. If you were to read about the early church, and by the early church, I mean the church in its first couple hundred years of existence, okay? 
Uh, that's the early church by, by scholarly definitions. You can read about that in the Bible, especially in the book of Acts, but also in the rest of the New Testament. You can read about that to some extent in some other uh, historical references of your history. Not just come talk to me. I've got them on my shelves. I can give them to you. Okay? But here's what you would find about the early church. The early church didn't play church. The early church didn't play church. We play church. The early church didn't play church. They were on mission. Men. Dudes. Listen, okay? Guys, specifically. Guys, okay? Listen up because you rarely hear this. Being a Christian is about being on a mission. Now, most of what we think of when we, when we think about church, but like we don't think of church as a place of mission. We think of it as a home, right? Because most of the aspects of the church that are, that are kind of taught to us are about how the church is a place for, to be cared for, to be nurtured, to be supported. It's a home. And that is very true. And most of those things connect very vividly. And I'm not saying, I'm laying out a generalization. So, okay, so generalization, generally. Those things, the idea of a church as a home where you're nurtured, cared for, supported, those connect really well with women, right? And so guys are like, I don't know, man. I mean, I get it. I know I should be here. But the game, you know, What I'm here to tell you, men, is that being a Christian, being a part of the church, is about being on mission. That the the Jesus said, he he looks at Peter when Peter gives him the the chief confession, he says, Who do who do you think that I am? And Peter says, You're the Christ, the Son of the Living God. And Jesus says, Um, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father is in heaven. And I tell you this, you are Peter. Okay, he, he, they called him Simon up to that point. He renames him. He said, you're Peter, and on this rock, which is a word play, because the word Petra in, in, uh, in Greek means rock. He says, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And listen, here's, here's the thing. Build your church. You're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Build your church. And the gates of hell will not withstand it. Now think with me. Gates withstanding something doesn't mean, don't worry, you're going to be safe. Does it? If the gates of hell are breaking down, it's because something is pressing into them. Jesus says, that is my church. The church in the world is meant to advance, to push back darkness, to spread. It is on mission, guys. And you are part of it. Now I say this, and some of you in this room are immediately like, that is my problem with Christians. This is my problem all the time. Why do they always try and convert people? Why can't they just let people be, right? If you're not thinking this, you've heard this, okay? Why can't they just let people be? Well, here's my answer, and this is a short answer. It deserves a longer one. Here's a short one. Simply put, if we just let people be, it would mean we don't really believe any of this, right? It would would mean we don't really believe any of this. It it would mean that we're not Christians. Why can't Christians just... Let people be and not try and convert people. Because if they did, they wouldn't be Christians. Here's the thing. The gospel is not advice. The gospel is news, right? It is news. It is a, it is a message. Jesus isn't Lord only if you believe in him. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. You may not acknowledge it. You may not like it. In the same way that you may not like the fact that there's a cliff in front of you. But if you drive off of it, it... It's real, right? 
You not believing in the cliff does not somehow make a road magically appear in front of you as you're driving. Let me, let me make that a little more clear. Hell isn't only a reality for those who believe Jesus saved them from it. Again, you may choose not to believe in cyanide, but if you drink it, you will die. Okay? It is, a, it is a fact. And so to not announce this, to not announce the gospel, is to say we don't believe on them. We don't believe in it. To, to let people go on their merry way is to say, I hate you, and I don't really care what happens to you. Have fun. Every Christian, listen to me, every Christian is in the gospel business. This is why this church is so dogged about multiplication. This is why we are constantly talking about seeing Christians multiplied, about seeing our groups multiplied, and ultimately about seeing congregations multiplied through in this city and throughout the valley. Because being a Christian is about partnering in the gospel. Okay? Now, that said, let's look at partnering in grace. Look down in verse 7. Paul says, I'm right to feel like this. And he's talking about how he's got them in his heart. He's like, I'm right to feel like this. I have you in my heart because you're partners with me of grace. Okay? Partners with me of grace. Now, uh, in the ESV, it says partakers, but it's the exact same word Paul used to talk about partnership in the gospel. Okay? There's a ton here. There's a ton in these verses. Uh, a lot of it having to deal with the fact that Paul talks about partnering in grace, and then immediately he starts talking about suffering. That sounds fun, right? Like, who, who wants to talk about that? Uh, but at its core, what Paul means, and we're gonna, don't worry, there, this whole book, it, we'll, we'll flesh that particular aspect out later. We don't have time to do it this morning. The core of what Paul means is that we are all sharing in the grace of God. Now, I said this last week, uh, and, and I kind of hinted at it here, but let me sp- be specific on this. Being made right with God, being reconciled to God, is either by grace or it is by nothing at all. Okay? Now, I know this sounds weird, right? You're like, Rick, I grew up in church. Right? Some of you? You're like, I grew up in church. I never heard that. I know. Again, why do you think we are so adamant about mission here? (laughs) Because there are lots of places like that. Stanton doesn't just need another church, right? I mean, come on. you, You drive around the city. There's like a steeple on every block. Stanton doesn't need another church. It needs a different kind of church. It needs a church that's doggedly talking about this all the time and then living it out. See, what Paul is saying is is the same grace that rescued him. He's He's saying, look, the same grace that rescued me when I had the blood of Christians on my hands. That's Paul. The same grace that rescued me when I had the blood of Christians on my hands rescued you in your brokenness. Later in this letter, Paul will say that in terms of religiosity, in terms of doing it right and getting the religious thing down, that he had it all. And he says it counted for nothing before God. That he had done all of it. He had followed all the rules. He had done all of these things and it counted for nothing. He needed a grace. So do I. So do you. Listen to me. Either Jesus saves or you do, but you cannot have it both ways. The gospel, 
The good news is that God isn't waiting for you, friends, to get your act together. Because you haven't. And you never will. Instead, he came in Jesus to live perfectly for you, to die sacrificially for you, and to rise again for you. You didn't do anything to earn that, which gloriously means you can't do anything to lose it. That is grace. But there's more to this. Look at the return in verses 8 to 10. Paul says, look, I pray that your love will abound with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless. Now, I say that, that is super confusing because I just said, I just said like, you, that everything is by grace, but here it's like Paul's saying, I want you to be pure and blameless. And you're like, which is it? <laughs> Two things about this. First, grace. The grace of God is not a get-out-of-jail-free card that leaves you like you were. Let me say that again. The grace of God is not a get-out-of-jail-free card that leaves you like you were. Grace transforms us. And so when, what Paul is talking about when he's talking about knowledge and discernment and approving what is excellent, what, what he means by that, and this, again, this is a little overly simple, but, but we don't have time to flesh it out. What he means is being able to navigate the world Christianly. He says, what I pray is that in love, you're going to have knowledge and discernment, be able to approve what is right, so that as you're navigating the world, you can do so Christianly. In other words, you will grow more like Jesus. And Paul is confident that God will continue his work in them. Remember that? that the work that he began, he's going to finish it. He's going to flesh it out. So what is that work? Listen, it isn't just getting them to heaven. It's not just getting them to heaven. It's making them a new people. Making us a new people who aren't governed by brokenness, but by the Spirit of God. Okay? But second, what I want you to notice is that Paul is praying about this. He says, I pray that this might be true of you. Which means that the ultimate actor in all of this isn't us. You see that? If it was, he would be saying, yo, what I need you all to do is to get your loves in order, grow in your knowledge and discernment, and be able to walk out life in the world Christianly. Can you do that? But he doesn't. He's not talking, he's not asking us to get our act together. He's praying about it. He's looking to God to do the work. Now that's not to say we aren't involved and engaged. What it is to say, however, is that, and, and if you've been in the church for a while, even in an evangelical church, listen, listen on this part. It is to say that grace is not a first principle which we then leave behind. It's not as if we go, well, grace, I mean, that's how I became a Christian, and now, now I work hard. Now I grit my teeth. Now I'm in accountability and discipleship and suffering, and I'm going to be a good Christian. No, grace produces fruit in us. Okay, listen, if you're a theology nerd, listen close. You remember that Paul says, and we talk about this all the time, New Testament says it, Paul says it, that we are saved by grace through faith, right? We are saved by grace through faith, okay? Salvation includes being made right with God. We call that justification, right? You with me, theology people? Just nod your head. Yes, I got that. We got that big term. I got it. So we call that justification. That is part of salvation, yes? But, be, but salvation also includes sanctification, which means being made more like God. Sanctification is by grace through faith. 
Not just justification. Grace actually produces something in us. And if it hasn't, it could mean we haven't experienced it. What I mean is that if you aren't seeing change in your life, it begs the question, have you experienced the grace of God? It's, worth, it's a question worth asking. I'm not saying necessarily one way or the other. I'm saying it's a question worth asking and then asking the Lord to help you see. But maybe you don't believe me. Right? I mean, sure, you can handle the idea that you get to heaven by faith, but in the meantime, it's up to you, right? Look down at verse 11. Because <laughs> Paul says that when you're pure and blameless on the day of Christ Jesus, he says you are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through, now wait for it, Jesus Christ. The fruit of righteousness comes through my hard work and devotion to the Lord. No, it comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Did you see that? So the fruit of righteousness is the kind of faithfulness to God and others that we would expect of Christians. And Paul says that comes to you through Jesus Christ. It doesn't come through you. To use the words of our president, you didn't build that. Right? The change in us doesn't come because we worked so hard, were so disciplined, made such responsible choices, unlike those people. The change in our life comes through grace in the work of Jesus. It doesn't come because we are so faithful and mature. And I know, listen, I know we want to think this. I want to think this. I want to think this so that at the end of the day, I can say, look what I've done. Look at the quality of my life. Right? But Paul says that it comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In other words, it's all from him, so it's all about him. When we were dead, he makes us alive. When we were lost, he comes and finds us. When we were broken, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put us back together. But the grace of Jesus can and does make us whole. And then as we grow, it isn't because I'm just so much better than the rest of you. That's why God called me to be a pastor. Are you kidding? Some of y'all know me. And let's be honest, it's a joke that I'm up here, isn't it? It is. So it isn't, we, we don't, we, we, we aren't the ones who made this. As we grow, it is God carrying on that work until completion, which makes it all of God. Friends, that is why we become partners in the gospel. If that's not true, if that's not what you believe, that that's the kind of grace that you've embraced, that, that Jesus not only would make you alive, but he's the one who's literally... You think you are a Christian today and remain a Christian today because your faith is so much stronger than other people? No. God has you in his hands. 
And he carries you in all of your weakness, in all of my weakness, in all of our feeble attempts at devotion. He's carrying us. That's why Jesus said, I give them eternal life and no one can snatch them out of my hand. He's carrying you. If you still believe that you contribute something, then why see the gospel advance? People just need to clean up their act like you did, right? But if God is gracious, I don't mean a little, but if he saves fully, then we shout it from the rooftops so that others can partner in the same grace that we have. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that this would be characteristic of this group of people in this room right now. Myself, most of all. That we would see that we are actually that needy. That God, that you didn't give us a hand up. But you literally knocked down the gates of hell. Ran in, picked us up while we were lying on the ground and rushed us out and continue to carry us and will continue to carry us until the day of Christ Jesus. Would you let that be characteristic of us? Because Lord, I am convinced of this, that if we believe that, everything will change. Everything will change in our lives. Everything will change in our relationships. And by your continued grace through the Holy Spirit, working through us, everything will change in our city. So Lord, convince us of this. Not all of us are here believing that. Some of us, even though we've been in this church for years, we need your continued grace. Lord, that you that began a good work, would you carry it out to completion? And for my friends here who don't yet know you haven't even begun this relationship, Lord, I pray that you would begin a good work in them right now. And that as we respond, we would respond with praise, rejoicing in the grace that we have shared in. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.